Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back to the podcast. Saul Marquez here. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Christopher Boone. Dr. Christopher Boone. He serves as the vice president and lead of global medical epidemiology and big data analysis for Pfizer. He's an adjunct assistant professor of health administration at the New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, an active board member of several influential organizations, and a co-founder of a few startup companies. Most recently, he served as a vice president and head of real-world data and analytics at Pfizer. He's been recognized as a 2019 Top 100 Innovator in Data and Analytics, a 2018 Emerging Pharma Leader by Pharmaceutical Executive, and a 2017 Top 40 Under 40 Leader in Minority Health by the National Minority Quality Forum. He is an outstanding individual thinking big in healthcare, and I'm privileged to open up the mic to Christopher to fill us in on any of the gaps that I may have missed and to get into the podcast. Chris, welcome. Uh, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Chris. Now, um, uh, you know, actually, I should ask you before I keep going with that, uh, and obviously, this is editable. Chris or Christopher? Chris. Chris is good? Yeah. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure you're good with that rather than go all the way through and you feel like, man, I should have told him. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, either works. It's my name, right? But, yeah. uh, but just, I'm a very informal guy. So, okay. Cool. Like, cool. Uh, so, totally and you, so, you don't have to edit this part out, you know, because I think this is good for, for people to know that uh, I'm just a, a pretty everyday, low key kind of guy. Chris is fun. Like Chris, it is. So, so Chris, uh, tell me a little bit more about what inspires your work in healthcare. Wow. The thing that inspires me most is just the ability to help people. I mean, I think that generally um, healthcare is one of those industries that, for the most part, healthcare is one of those industries that I think most people get into because there's, there's kind of this overwhelming desire to want to make things better. And there's no better industry to do that than in the healthcare and life sciences space. Now, personally, uh, you know, I shared this actually, uh, it came out earlier this week in a LinkedIn post and in a Twitter that I released a note, a letter describing who my single or one of my greatest inspirations is and uh, certainly my greatest patient inspiration. And that was my mom's and the issues she had with lupus and mm -hmm. uh, growing up and watching her. And with that, uh, pretty much that chronic disease is uh, certainly troubling to see one of your loved ones uh, endure so much pain. But I think where it really started to, uh, uh, to change is when you start to, when you have that personal encounter, right? Most people don't realize some of the deficiencies in any system until they have their own encounter with the system. And for me, it was when, um, it was actually when she, when she had the stroke and then um, she actually, we really experienced firsthand the, uh, the lack of information or data sharing that existed between provider organizations and how, and how critical it is to just give the actual routine care uh, to a patient and uh, who couldn't necessarily speak for herself because she had just had a stroke. Uh, she had the short-term paralysis that associated with that, which means she really couldn't speak well. And so it was a tough, it was a tough situation. But I think uh, that somewhat critical moment in my, uh, or defining moment, I'll, I'll call it, in my life was one that told me that I needed to actually use or uh, better utilize my talents to, to make things better for other people so that they wouldn't have to encounter that. The interesting thing about it is that prior to that moment, 
I had already started to think about, hey, I want to be in healthcare because I, I again, had this overwhelming desire to think I could help people. And, uh, and I was working actually at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, which is an academic medical center there. But I was thinking along the lines of, oh, I'm going to go off and I'm going to be a hospital administrator. It's a really cool job to do. You run a hospital and, you know, all things are what they are. But it was when my mother had her experience and we were there and I was part of it is when I started to really, I pivoted. I pivoted back to my natural uh, talents, which is in the informatics and data side of it, and thought that I could really have, um, you can really do some transformational from that vantage point. And, and I'm grateful for the fact that I've been able to do that. So even if well, it's just a little bit. I think it's a great story, Chris. And how's your mom doing? Oh, she's great, man. She's still in Dallas. You know, I share, <laughs> I share with her the story that, you know, because actually I spoke about this. Uh, the first time I ever spoke about my mother and her this situation uh, specifically and how it inspired me, was actually in 2015. I was at, uh, at the time the CEO of the Health Data Consortium. We were hosting Health Data Palooza in 2015, and I went public with it. I was nervous, really, really nervous. Before, yeah. You know, because you, you're releasing something so personal, right? And mm-hmm. usually when you find people are doing these keynotes, they're very, uh, yeah, kind of very, it's very, it's divorced from their personal emotion or their personal experience, right? Yeah. And so for me, I was revealing so much about myself, but I felt like that's what we needed to do. We needed to make it real for people and let people know that these individuals that are in DC or wherever they are, are real people too. And they're ultimately driven by something, right? And, um, yes. and you know, for me, my motivation was, was that experience. But then, you know, so you fast forward to where we are today, and it's that feeling never really goes away, you know, that feeling of anxiety and, you know, it's like, oh, I'm revealing this part of myself, but you don't, I don't necessarily do it for myself. I do it for other people. It becomes, uh, it's been remarkable to see the level of uh, responses that I've gotten from people globally. We read that short write-up on LinkedIn and, um, and even within the walls of Pfizer, whom I've never met, you know, they sent me direct messages and they're like, oh, I'm so inspired by your story. My mother has lupus too, or... I have a family member who has this chronic condition. And, you know, and, and what it reminds me is that um, relatability is important. And the humanity side of healthcare is extremely important. And I think it gets lost. We get so wrapped up in some of the more political issues. And I think we, we lose sight of the fact that it's really, and it should be solely and primarily about the patient. And, um, and so for that part, I'm grateful. And, uh, you know, and everything, you know, they, well, they say everything happens for a reason. So you have these defining moments in your life and it inspires you to do something and you hope it's for the greater good. So that's where I am with it. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a strong message about humanity, relatability. You're so right about it. And I think it, it is something that as healthcare leaders, we forget about. So I really appreciate you, you bringing it up and uh, putting it front and center for us. As we think about healthcare and and the things that we could be doing to make it better. How would you say what you're doing is adding value either to Pfizer and your customers or to the healthcare ecosystem as a whole? I mean, I think the work we're doing right now is very, very, very important. I mean, you hear the term big data analytics, and it's certainly a buzzword at this point, but I think where it really adds the most value is in its its application, right? Its use and how it not and not just running analyses for analysis sake, but the actual impact that you make from the analysis. And what we're doing right now, especially with the organization that I'm heading right now at Pfizer, um, which is called Global Medical Epidemiology and Big Data Analysis, what we're trying to do is get I would almost give it a trifecta, if you will, of how we think about clinical care, right? So when in our group, we're utilizing big data or these very novel data sources to better understand the current uh, state of a disease, right? The current epidemiology of a disease. And that includes the 
the burden of the disease, the unmet needs, the incidence and prevalence rates, those particular subpopulations that are affected most by that particular disease, and ultimately, what's the current standard of care as it pertains to that particular clinical condition? And what it allows us to do, you know, if you think about the current state of clinical research with uh, randomized clinical trials, is that when you look at the population of folks or participants that are actually in a randomized clinical trial, it's a very homogenous group of folks, right? And quite frankly, the numbers say that it's roughly 80 to 85% whites and then white males on top of that, mm-hmm. which is generally not reflective of what I would say the U.S. or even the global population is, correct? Mm-hmm. So when you think about the approval of all of these medicines, they're based on a very homogenous population, yet we're um, actually treating patients with these d- d- diseases based on that group. And so when you think about the power of what we're doing is that we fully recognize that there are subpopulations that look different, right? And that would be their genetic makeups or genetic profiles are different. Their environmental conditions are different. Their socioeconomic statuses are different. All these different, and I'm going to use the term social determinants of factors that are there that create a different experience for that patient. So my team, my group, we are very focused on understanding what those subpopulations look like and who would actually uh, benefit most or who would be at most risk uh, when it comes to certain clinical conditions and who would, and where our, our medicines could treat those patients better. So you imagine a world where clinical research, clinical trials will look different than it has looked in the past 50 years, right? And now we're introducing these new capabilities and technologies with the data and the advanced analytics and now epidemiological methods to better understand these populations, these clinical conditions, these current standards of care, and then we're able to design uh, studies that would generate the best evidence of how these medicines work in the real world. And so it's a very powerful thing, and ultimately it's truly a transformational or paradigm shift for the way we've done clinical development and clinical research in the past. And I'm very, very excited about it. And then, you know, another thing about it that, that really makes it that much more powerful is the level of engagement we're getting from patients. And you're, you're hearing this movement and the shift towards citizen science. And one of the, I guess, prime examples I think of when it comes to citizen science is, is the All of Us program, for example, right? Where patients are actively contributing their data and then that data is thus being used for, for what we say, quote unquote, the public good, right? And, uh, and I think that um, the power of that and the ability to do analyses on that data to better understand our current uh, treatment protocols, current diseases that are out there, and, and then thus develop uh, treatments and medicines and interventions for that uh, becomes very, very powerful. It sure does. And the idea of transforming the clinical trials with social determinants of health and the subpopulations, I mean, that, that's really exciting. I, I agree with you. And when you think about a large company and scalability being a thing, how do you deal with that, right? I mean, you, how do you address the different populations and still have a scalable business? No, that, that's a great question. I think you have to be practical. <laughs> Always use the hashtag innovate practically. Um, yep. It's one of the things I do. And so you, you, you have to be realistic about what you can actually attain. And the thing you don't want to do is get in the land of uh, pilot purgatory. I love that that phrase. I didn't coin it, but I actually heard someone else mention use it before, and I thought it was I love it too. <laughs> very, very insightful uh, space. Because generally, what we do when you're doing something innovative, you want to say, well, "Let's do a pilot," right? And so you do all of these pilots that never really translate into anything. So part of my my philosophy around innovating practically is that okay, let's choose one or two areas where we can really focus on and deliver it from end to end and actually demonstrate a measurable impact of that. 
whether it be clinical, economic, business, operational, you name it, right? So that's generally what the, and so when you talk about scalability, it's around building an operating model that allows you to execute on that pilot, quote unquote, from end to end, and then demonstrating a measurable impact at the onset of that, and then building on that. And so I think that that's the most important thing. I think where there's been a dangerous thing for, for very large organizations that is that when you're trying to do innovative uh, approaches, it gets lost in the bureaucracy. It can take six to 18 months to even get things approved from <laughs> whether it be through your legal teams, your executive teams, your procurement teams, and every other division that has to touch it. And that part, that part is, a, is I think, is, is catastrophic to innovation. And so when it comes to a lot of the big pharma companies or just big companies generally, sometimes we, we're going to have to find ways to get out of our own way and find ways to be, be a bit more nimble and, um, and, and really driving that innovation in the business. And it is tough because you're trying to turn the Titanic, if you will, and it's, so it's not easy. But I think that with a group like ours, we're, we're approaching this in a very, very uh, practical way. We're not trying to boil the ocean. We're focused on two to three very concrete things, and we're trying to see them through and see what impact it has. No, I think it's, I think it's really great, Chris. And and you know, you're obviously a veteran in in the field and understand the challenges. But also, it sounds like you guys have honed in on some very specific areas where you believe the company can make a, a large impact with this approach. Yeah, you know, the, the interesting about it is that this is what I will share with people, and I share this in, in all of my talks, and I always find it interesting to see the, the reaction that I get, because when people say, well, what's the greatest challenge you face? And what they're, really, what they're really waiting on is me to give them some very technical or technological challenge that we experience as it pertains to what we're trying to do. And what I tell them is that, honestly, the single greatest challenge I have is the cultural transformation necessary to make this work, right? Because that's the thing that I think often goes overlooked or understated is that when you look at changing the business and operating models of an organization, you have to, you can never uh, forget that there are people involved in this. And there's a level of uh, adoption and integration that you must endure to make it work. And it has to be sustainable, which means people have to believe in it. And it's tough. And, and that, that's not, that has little to do with your technical aptitude and the capabilities, right? And that requires, right. you know, great leadership, leadership and stewardship and change management protocols and plans. And, and you really have to think about that. How do you, you know, when you say scale, you really are saying, how do you institute change to sustain that innovative idea, right? And then from there becomes the scaling. The scalability is not the issue. You can scale it, but will people use it or adopt it or will it change anything, right? So the question is really around the ability to somewhat drive organizational transformation. And that, that is a, where I think most big organizations are uh, in this current digital era that we're in. And, uh, and you need more leaders who can effectively do that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. And yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of um, larger companies work with incubators or even have a, a venture arm of their own to try to drive some of that innovation externally and then bring it in. I think it's great that that you guys are are working on this internally and have somebody like yourself that understands, you know, those levers that need to be pulled to create that transformation that will lead to better medicine and and, and better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, the the investment in like the, uh, you know, we'll say the subsidiaries or divisions that are focused on external partners or external engagement to drive innovation 
is almost an acknowledgement by the big organization that says they know that it's hard to drive innovation within their own walls. Right. So they have to set up a separate organization to do it and to work with external partners to see that level of innovation that they want to see. And, uh, and, but I, I still think the, the idea of the larger mothership organization transforming is still needed, right? So it's okay. very difficult to do an outside-in yeah. uh, when, when it comes to driving sustainable innovation in a very large company. The, the, the benefit of many of the companies that have been created in the last 10 to 15 years is that they're all digitally native companies, right? Which means they came into it, they were born in the digital era. A lot of the uh, digital technologies they embraced, it was part of, it's part of their DNA. Whereas you have companies like, large companies like Pfizer that have been around for 170 years, right? There is a, yeah. an element a large element of transformation that has to take shape. You know, obviously the organization has survived through uh, different periods, so there's not a question of whether it can do it, but it, it's, it's a question of how do you do it effectively and with, in a manageable way, and I think that that's the, the key. Yeah, Chris, I'm glad you brought that up, right? I mean, it's not enough to outsource innovation. There's got to be an internal transformation to stay with the times. And, and as, you, as you think about the things that you're most proud of, in your career, can you highlight maybe a business accomplishment or, or an outcome that you're most proud of in what you've done? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny because uh, that, that's always a very difficult question because you, you, you know, you feel like all of your experiences are like your children in many respects that yeah. um, they all shaped you in different ways. Right. And uh, so it's not, and I think people always want to lean to their signature achievement. And I, and I think for me, it's all the, the things that have influenced me and impacted me the most have always been the greatest failures, right? And there's been a number of them. And I think it all depends on how people define failure. And failure for me doesn't mean that, you know, I was sleeping in my car, or, you know, I don't have one of those types of stories. But <laughs> you do have one of those things that's like, man, this really, it cut me deep, or I have to pick myself back up from this experience. So I, I don't know if I have a single defining moment in that regard as far as a professional experience in that sense. But I think when I think about accomplishments and achievements, it's always the most recent thing that I've done in my eyes, right? So right now, mm-hmm. uh, we're effectively building out an entirely new organization within Pfizer. The name of the group is called Global Medical Epidemiology and Big Data Analysis. I've been extremely fortunate to, uh, um, to recruit some very, very talented individuals to be part of this build. And you can imagine it being like a startup company within a large company. We're tasked with introducing a very innovative uh, capability and, and what I feel is the future of the healthcare industry, not just biopharmaceuticals, but the healthcare industry more broadly, and that's real evidence. And I think that um, for that and for the opportunity to, to lead that and to drive that, I'm most proud of that. But if you would have asked me two years ago or five years ago, then I would have gave, given you something else that was probably very recent at that time. But I think right now what I'm hanging my hat on is the ability to introduce something very novel, very nascent, but very transformative in a large, a very large global company like Pfizer that I feel like carries us into the future. And for that, I'm proud of it. Yeah, that's definitely a lot to be proud of, Chris. And uh, congratulations on that. And the future is bright. You know, if you, if you had to look ahead and say, yeah, in five years, our impact will have been this. If you guys were to have to succeeded, what would that be? Wow. I think that five years from now, to say that the success for me would be that we have the regulators globally fully accepting real-world evidence to really make their regulatory decisions on medicine. Right. And the significance of that is that real world evidence is much more reflective of the heterogeneity that we see 
and the patient population, and it's also much more reflective of the real-world experience of many of our patients. And if we can find a way to generate evidence that is acceptable to regulators and accurate and allow them to ultimately bridge the gap of the evidence we use for clinical care and that we use for uh, regulatory approval, then that, to me, is a huge win. Because right now, where the current state is, is that the evidence that we submit to a regulator, in this case, the FDA, right, is one of the regulators, to make a regulatory decision on a drug or a medicine is not necessarily the same evidence that would be used by a physician or provider to make their clinical care decisions, right? And so what you want to imagine is a world where that evidence is one and the same, right? So you've bridged the gap of the evidence used for clinical care with the evidence that's used for regulatory decision-making as it pertains to medicine. I also hope that we, we're more like, much more like a learning health system, which means that we've closed that feedback loop. So in addition to kind of bridging that evidence gap between or chasm between regulatory approval and care, you also are constantly learning from that evidence being generated from all these digital technologies. And, and you know, I mean, now they say that most of the data about our, our healthcare is generated out, obviously outside of the walls of a provider organization. Um, with all of the digital technologies we have, if we can somehow curate all of these data types and these data assets to fully understand the patient experience and really tailor and develop those interventions for that individual and continuously learn from those experiences, that is the ideal state. So it's really about creating a learning healthcare system, right? I know we've all said it, but I actually think that now there's an appetite for it. There are the technologies in place to do it. I actually think many of the policymakers are on board we're putting in um, the necessary public policies and regulatory policies to make that happen. So I think the time is now. And uh, that for that, I'm very, very excited about that. Well, the outcome is clear, and, <laughs> and it is very exciting, Chris, to have a future where regulators can accept real-world evidence in their decision-making, and it's a big task. So, you know, I, I think what you're doing is, is, is very exciting and very promising, and I'm, and I'm rooting for you and, and your team's success, as, as I know the listeners are, too. Oh, thank you very much. Very kind of you. So, Chris, tell me about, uh, you know, you talked about setbacks. I'd love to hear maybe one of the setbacks that you feel has been the one that you learned most from. Wow. The one that I've learned most from. You know, I think that, um, you know, cause, <laughs> because I don't want to reveal any particular organization or individual, but, but I will say that I think we all know that the only constant is change. And I think that I've been in situations where I felt that we were making immense progress um, towards a goal, a shared vision, if you will. And then to have that derailed either by political or organizational challenges is always a tough, a tough pill to swallow, especially for people, because, you know, as I said before, for most people, I think that really come into this, like myself, we come into healthcare because really, really are about change, really, right? And you, you really feel that the work you're doing is really going to benefit the patient. And when you have a situation where whatever the end goal is, is now no longer attainable because of some situation, that's a bit deflating. And so you do find yourself because you're, so unlike other industries, I think we tend to invest a lot of emotion in, in addition to our cognitive abilities into our work. So you find that failure is that much more traumatic, if you will, because you're, you're not only picking yourself up from a psychological perspective, you're picking yourself up from an emotional perspective, too, because you invest so much. And I think what we all have to do as leaders and as upcoming or emerging leaders in this space, it's not necessarily divorce yourself from your emotion in this context, but just recognize and fully embrace that having some level of 
agility or recognizing and embracing the change and being able to pivot is critical, right? And I think that that would be the greatest piece of advice that I would have with people is be able to adapt and adapt with the change. Don't fight it. Don't resist it because the change could actually be good. But you just have to be able to, uh, as Bruce Lee would say, flow like water and all the uh, changes that we see in the industry right now. And I think those things will continue and they will continue to happen at a much more accelerated rate than they have happened. So we need to be, need to be prepared for that. Yep. We could only control the controllables and uh, flow like water. I hadn't heard that one before. I love it. <laughs> so what are you most excited about today, Chris? You know, it's uh, interesting. I was talking to someone earlier today and uh, they asked me a, a similar question. Not quite. We weren't having a podcast. It was just a casual yeah. conversation. And, you know, they asked me like, man, what, what really excites you right now? And I think, um, and what I told them, and I said, actually, the, what excites me right now is actually this movement towards a kind of a much more open, integrated citizen science ecosystem. Uh, where we're truly like incorporating the patient voice and, and patient-generated data into clinical research, um, I think it just creates so much opportunity. I mean, you know, when you think about, especially with our precision medicine efforts, I mean, they're definitely there. Um, but even on the population health management, I think it creates immense opportunity. So I think, what, you know, where we are in this world today is really trying to um, bridge this very siloed industry, a very fragmented industry, and seeing more uh, cross-sector collaboration and I think, uh, you know, the incorporation of the patient voice in a lot of the work that we do on the clinical research side is, uh, is certainly critical and it, and it hasn't, it's been underutilized to say the least, right? And so I think that I'm, I'm very excited about this push towards creating a much more integrated uh, citizen science ecosystem. Yeah, I think that is exciting. And, you know, I'd also say, Chris, the, on the general kind of horizon of healthcare, there does seem to be a a broader sense of consumerism and transformation in our midst. And so why do you think that is? You know, the citizen science, the consumerism, why do you think that change is happening? I think there has there certainly been, you know, uh, all of the political, economic, social, cultural catalysts for change. And more importantly, you have these technology, technological enablers to make that happen realistically, right? I think before when we were you know, we'll say 20 years ago, we had these discussions, it was uh, a bit unattainable. And I don't think that there was an appetite from even the consumer or patient community broadly, as much as you have right now. You have people now that are very, very, very engaged in the daily management of the healthcare of themselves or their loved ones, right? And yeah, I think, sure. uh, um, but if you were to ask that same question 20 years ago, we still very much operate in this very paternalistic healthcare paradigm where it was just like, I just do what I'm told to do and, and you hope for the better, right? But, uh, but now, man, you find patients. And they know as much as, <laughs> as some of the providers in some cases, you know, as, as it pertains to their, their own chronic condition, because they do so much research and much of that information is being democratized, if you will, to the public. And, and anytime you have increased awareness and you have people that are much more knowledgeable, they're now empowered to demand change and demand transformation and demand better care and demand better medicine and demand better outcomes, right? So I think it all starts with the patient. It all starts with empowering the patient with knowledge, empowering the patient with decision-making authority. And that's really where the catalyst starts because they demand more of their providers. They demand more of their payers. They demand more of the pharma companies. They demand more of their policymakers. So at the end of the day, the patient is certainly the, the center of all of this change. And transformation. I think it's awesome. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, it's a great call out. If you could name one book that you'd recommend to the listeners, Chris, what book would that be? Wow. Uh, you know, I think one of my all-time favorite books is still Good to Great. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a student of leadership, and I'm a student of building organizations, building high-performing organizations, right, we'll say. And I love good to great, but there's so many principles in that book that I think apply to general life, too. But, you know, um, that would probably be the book that I would, I would certainly think and suggest that people read. Great recommendation. And how about having coffee with somebody? If you could have coffee or lunch with anyone, who would it be? Oh, God, it has to be one person? <laughs> but, okay, because if I'm, thinking, if I'm having coffee or lunch, I would want to sit around a table with just a cohort of very... I love how you uh, think, by the way. It's like, just one? Know, wait a minute. Let me assemble a cohort. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have to... I don't, I'm not adding great question but but it's just i'm just thinking of it like i would want it to be a round table some thought leaders and provocative individuals who are apt to want to challenge the status quo so i think in, in in my mind if i'm imagining this kind of round table discussion where i could just kind of absorb all of this knowledge and wisdom from these individuals i think uh, what i would have i certainly have michelle obama would be on that list i think malcolm gladwell would be on that list mm. elon musk would be on that list Stevie Wonder would be on that list. Oh, yeah? <laughs> um, and I would have, you know who else I would have on that list, and it's just because it's a recent thing, and I just he's been on my mind, is actually uh, Johnny Ivey from Apple. Okay. Yeah. The brain behind the iPhone. You know, the guy doesn't get enough credit for being like this genius who actually developed and pioneered the design, the iPhone and the iPad and all these other Apple technologies, right? And right now to have been ushered out of, the organization where he spent the vast majority of his life and he's played such a pivotal role in his success. I would just like to hear what he's thinking right now. Yeah. You know, but, what, what's his what, name? Johnny Ivy. J-O-N-Y. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh huh. And your know, right hand guy of Steve Jobs, you know, so everybody talks about Steve Jobs, but they don't mention uh, Mr. Ivy as much. And he's I was a design love- genius, right? Yeah. Design genius. Yeah, so just think about like, what were you thinking when you actually designed the iPhone? And then I would want to know, like, what he's thinking right now. It's just kind of a futurist, like, right? What's and next? What is see the future of, of digital technology going? Because obviously he's, he's far ahead of us, you know, as far as mm-hmm. how he uh, imagines the world. Yeah, you know, definitely I'm a big Elon Musk fan, obviously. I think many people are. But, you know, I would also, I, would, I have to diversify the group and having some of, uh, some of the uh, emerging leaders that are out there, too. And, and there's uh, two people that, that, that really come up to mind that, I, that I've actually been just kind of tracking, so to speak. Not stalking, but tracking. One woman, her name is uh, Layla Jana, and she's actually the uh, founder of, of Samosource, which is a, uh, a nonprofit that's trying to connect poor women and children to the digital economy and all about addressing this issue around global poverty. The other uh, leader that I think of as an emerging leader is, um, is uh, Jay Kimmelman, who's starting a nonprofit to address this issue around low-cost, uh, high-quality education. So I think that that's uh, those are two individuals I would bring. So you almost have these kind of very industry veterans or more seasoned individuals who bring a very mature perspective. Then you have these individuals who have had recent experiences, but they've been pioneers in their own right. And then you have these emerging leaders that are coming up with a very fresh perspective on the world and the global challenges that we experience. And I would just like to just hear from all of these innovative minds on whether it be <laughs> how music is now uh, created or uh, the future of, uh, of electric vehicles um, to the future of education on a global scale. And I just think those issues are very important. They're very important to me personally, but I think they're very important global issues as well. 
Man, give me an invite to that. And the listeners are probably like, is he going to be selling tickets to this thing? <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds awesome. <laughs> if, you, if you put this together, uh, I'm there, Chris. So just let me know. I'll buy a ticket. I'll put that on my 2020 goals. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, man, that's great. That's probably the best answer we've had to that question ever. So nice job. Chris, what's your number one health habit? Number one health habit. It has to be meditation and prayer. You yeah. know, I think um, a sound mind, and, you know, the rest of the stuff falls in place, right? And so yeah. I think that being able to be able to focus, being able to uh, be able to make sound decisions and, um, and to be grounded are things that are very important to me and, and from a mental and a spiritual perspective, because I find for me, when those things are out of balance, then everything feels like chaos. So I make a concerted effort to, to keep my mental and spiritual state in a very steady state, a calm state. And that's usually, um, I'm able to do that through, through meditation and prayer. Those are my big things. Love it. What's the best advice you ever received? The best advice? Wow. I would say, uh, you know, well, first of all, well, I'll, I'll answer that question in, in, in two ways. First thing I think that personally, I, I tend to live by one of my favorite of all time by far is by um, Maya Angelou and uh, I try to and I used to have it on my you know on my wall on my desktop everything and she basically says uh, my mission in life is not merely to survive but to thrive and to do so with some passion some compassion some humor and some style and that is like my uh, for me it embodies everything that I feel and believe and to me that is the best advice anybody could have ever given me. But the second thing that I would say that I, you know, I don't know my, my Angelou, I just, you know, obviously read her stuff and, and that was the quote that always jumped out at me. But something that someone gave me directly is to never let a single experience, whether it be a great accomplishment or achievement or a failure, define you. I yeah. think there's a tendency for people to, when they have an accomplishment, they think that just going to open the floodgates and every single thing out there is going to be a, a positive experience or they, or they start to believe their own hype, as I like to say. So I think humility is very important in that regard. But I also think when it comes to failure, some of the greatest lessons, as I mentioned earlier, for me personally, have come through failed experiences. So it doesn't have to define you. You learn from it and you build from it. So I think that um, those are probably the two things that I think I would say is the greatest advice, you know, from my Angelou and also just from a mentor who shared that uh, perspective. Oh, I love it, Chris. These are great. And um, as you were saying, um, I, I wrote both of them down just because they're great. And I'm thinking about my two-year-old son. I'm kind of thinking about ways to shape him. I'm definitely going to share this one, this last one with with him because it's uh, one that I think uh, and and believe in as well. Chris, this has been a blast. I, I really enjoyed our our talk. And why don't you just leave us with the closing thought and the best place where the listeners could uh, learn more about you and continue the conversation? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for this. I always love the podcast because you, it's much of a free-flowing conversation and you just, <laughs> I don't like scripted conversations, by the way. So it's, just, it's, always, it's always great to just talk. But I think that if any of the listeners want to find me, you can find me. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, both using Data Hippie, you know, on Twitter, nice. so it's at Data Hippie. On LinkedIn, you can also use Data Hippie and you'll find me as well. And so I'm there. I'm always looking to connect with folks and, and just hear people's stories. So please reach out. You know, I've had a great time. So thanks for, uh, for making the time to chat. Yeah, Chris, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. 
be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more. 